This Sunday, we are beginning a three-week series that I've entitled Countercultural. In our day and age and in our current culture, many of the truths of historic Christianity are being questioned. Many of the historic truths of Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity, are being questioned. And so what I would like to do for the next three weeks is take three common objections in today's culture to historic Christianity, unpack them, and what I hope to see each week is that as we look at the objections to Christianity that our culture has, I want us to see that actually these truths are the very thing our culture needs more than ever. This morning we're going to be looking at John 14, and we're going to be looking at the objection, isn't Christianity too narrow? Can there really be only one way to God? So I want us to look at together the objection, isn't Christianity too narrow? And we're going to do so by looking at John 14, verses 1 through 6. In John 14, actually in John 14, John 15, uh, John 16 and 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his pending arrest trial and death on the cross to put it this in context of john 14 jesus had just got done breaking bread for the last time with his disciples where he was sharing this news that the end is near and it would be starting in john chapter 14 that jesus would be giving his disciples everything they need to know for their hearts to be settled for their hearts to be comforted as Jesus says here in verse 1, for their hearts to not be troubled. So beginning in verse 1, let's hear the word of God together. Let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, You would have also known my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Is Christianity reasonable? Is Christianity rational? I mean, is it really possible to believe in a religion that says there's only one absolute truth? You turn on the news, you read the books, you read the stories, and it's no surprise that secularism is on the rise. Church attendance is dropping, the churches to the culture, so we're told, becoming less and less relevant. 
And so our response often is to dropping church attendance and our culture telling us that the church is increasingly less and less relevant to the common culture. Our response is typically we have to reinvent ourselves. There's been countless books, even over the last decade, which have had titles such as, We Must Change the Church or It Will Die. Isn't Christianity dead yet? For after all, it seems as if we're living in a day and age where absolute truth is under attack. The idea that there's only one way to get to heaven seems absolutely irrelevant. And so often in the churches, our response is we have to change. We have to become more relevant. And of course, we must water down our message. If someone was to say to you, even this morning, I reject Christianity because it's just way too narrow, how would you respond? You see, listening and doubting is no new thing. John the Baptist, even he doubted. He was a staunch supporter and follower of Jesus, but as he is about to be beheaded, He sends the messengers to Jesus and says, are are you certainly sure about everything you've preached? I didn't think this is the way it would end. Even Thomas, Thomas here is doubting at the very end, even after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he receives the reports. Even Thomas doubts and says, what? I will not believe until I can put my hands in the very wounds of Jesus. There's a story in the Gospels of a man whose son has convulsions and is foaming at the mouth and the man brings his son to Jesus and Jesus says to the man, do you believe? And what does the man say with fear and trembling? Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so more than ever today, fast forwarding 2,000 years later, more than ever, We need to know as a church what we believe. And we need to know why we believe it as we attempt to engage a culture and seek its renewal. The culture asks us this morning here at Coral Ridge, is what you believe reasonable? They ask us here at Coral Ridge, is what you believe rational? Jordan Mong, an atheist, went to Harvard because Harvard's motto is veritas, truth. She tells her story as an atheist going to Harvard to seek the truth. And through her research and discoveries at Harvard, this devout atheist turned her life over to Jesus Christ. And her testimony is this. I went to Harvard to find the truth, but the truth found me. And that's my heart for every single one of us here at Coral Ridge, that the truth would find me. So let's take a look at this, one of the claims of Christianity found here in John 14. John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, commentators and theologians for centuries have said that you could sit here and talk about and discuss and preach on this one verse in John 14, 6 for weeks, if not months. And so what we're going to do this morning is simply look at this one verse Because it's in this one verse that Jesus makes a very audacious claim. 
that to our common culture and to our current culture this morning seems incredibly irrational, incredibly unreasonable, and incredibly narrow. So I want us to look at this morning the claim here in John 14, 6, the objection to that claim, and then the uniqueness of that claim, which makes Christianity what it is. So point one, John 14, 6. What is the claim that Jesus is making here? This claim that seems so counter-cultural. Well, to put it in context, Thomas is asking a question, and he's asking a fair question. Jesus now, more than once, has explained to his disciples that he's going somewhere, that he's on a journey, that Jesus is, is leaving them and going somewhere else. So Thomas naturally asks Jesus, can you show us the way? probably the first time in recorded history that a man actually asked for directions, but he does it here. He asked for directions from Jesus himself and says, Jesus, can you point us to the way in which you're going? Can't find it on a map. I can't find it on my GPS. I need to know if you're leaving, we want to be there with you. And Jesus says, I will tell you the way. And Jesus boldly proclaims, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, the claim of Christianity from the words of Jesus himself is Jesus is claiming that there is only one way to get to God, and that is through him. That is through Jesus. And what is remarkable about this statement by Jesus is that Jesus doesn't point him to a way. He doesn't show him what the direction is. He points to himself the only leader in the only leader of a religion that is able to point to himself and say I can't show you the way I can't point to a way I can only point to myself I am the way but Jesus is not only claiming that he is the way he also interjects and says I am also the truth and also the life why does he do this Thomas is just asking for the way. He's just asking for how he, too, will be able to get to heaven to be with God and to be with Jesus. He doesn't ask him for who the truth is and who the life is. But what Jesus, the reason Jesus interjects the words life and truth is he wants Thomas and the rest of the listening world to understand that the way is objective. The way to heaven is objective, that there's not multiple ways, there's only one way. And because there's only one way, Jesus becomes the truth and the life. What Jesus wants to communicate to Thomas is that Jesus is not one of many truths, that Jesus is the objective truth, that he is not one of many options in life, but if you want to find your life, you must embrace Jesus. What's so important about this passage, even in understanding the original language and the original text, is notice the articles. It does not say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. It's very important in the original language. It says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What Jesus wants to communicate to Thomas and ultimately to us this morning, that when it comes to Jesus, there is only one. He is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus claims that there is a radical exclusiveness when it comes to the message 
of Christianity, a radical exclusiveness when it comes to the message of Jesus. What Jesus is ultimately saying is that unless you have me, you have no future. Unless you have me, you have no life. Unless you have me, you have no hope. This is the cardinal tenet of Christianity where it all rises and falls. And so the claim that Jesus is making here in John 14, 6, that there is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other life apart from the person of Jesus Christ. So what's the objection? If Jesus is making this very countercultural claim and making a claim that seems absolutely exclusive. You can only imagine that the culture throughout time and throughout history, and especially the culture that we live in today, would look at this claim, the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ in Christianity, and the objection would be, naturally, that is absolutely arrogant and prideful. For you Christians to say that you have the corner on truth, for you to say that you have the corner on heaven, for you to say that you have the absolute truth, and all the other religions of the world don't have that truth. And so what the objection is commonly in our culture is what our culture will do is they will stigmatize Christianity. And the way they will stigmatize Christianity is they will look at Christians, Orthodox Christians, and look at the claim as it's found here in John 14, 6, and they will stigmatize Christianity by calling Christians that hold to this belief uneducated and unenlightened. And they'll use axioms, and they will repeat those axioms enough that it actually becomes part of our common vernacular. They use the axioms so much that you begin to believe that it's truth. So what are two of the axioms in particular in the way that our culture objects to Christianity? Here's axiom number one that's commonly used. I'm sure you've heard it before. All religions are equally valid and teach the same thing. All religions are equally valid and ultimately teach the same thing. It's amazing how many people actually believe this to be true because our culture has succeeded in saying this enough and repeating it enough that we actually believe that there might be an ounce of truth to this. And so people say this enough and it eventually becomes true. Well, let's just take simply speaking and simply stating, let's just take the three most common world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Okay, well, they all believe that there's one God. The Hindus believe that there's 300 million gods. Confucius believed that there was no God at all. Right there, just on the surface, when you take some of the most common world religions, there's not even agreement on how many gods there are. Hardly a case for believing that all world religions are basically the same. What if I was to throw out this extreme example, but to throw out the example that there are some world religions that believe in child sacrifice? Well... If one world religion believes in child sacrifice, could we state the claim that all other world religions adopt and embrace this aspect of religion? Of course not. It seems as silly as the notion that all religions are basically the same. Let's take another axiom in particular that the culture uses to object to Christianity. All religions have part of the truth, but not the whole truth. 
right? It's, it's hard in our culture to believe that one religion would have all of the truth. So all religions have part of the truth, but not just the whole truth. There, in India, there is a old parable, um, maybe some of you have heard it before, but in India there's an old parable that is commonly used, through, been used throughout the centuries to talk about this axiom in particular, this idea that all religions have part of the truth but not the whole truth. And it goes a little like this. A, a king has an elephant and wants to do an experiment. So he invites six blind men to tell him what they experience and what they feel. And so the first blind man they take takes and feels the tail of the elephant and says, Oh, I'm 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 touching a rope. And, and another blind man takes the trunk and says, Oh, I must be touching a snake. And another blind man feels the side of the elephant and says, I, I must be touching a wall. And so so on and so forth, you get my, the point of the story. And so what they say, in, according to this parable and according to this illustration, is that this is how all the world religions are. And the blind men represent all of the religions in the world, and they have part of the truth, but not all the truth. When you actually take a step back, you begin to see all of the truth. And now, that story that has been used for centuries sounds good, right? It sounds humble and tolerant and accepting. Here's the problem. The only person that can actually determine that the blind men are only touching part of the elephant and not touching the whole elephant, you have to be in the vantage point of who? The king. And so actually what seems like a very humble posture to take, that all the world religions only see part of the truth but not the whole truth, you have to be in the vantage point of the king who's looking down at all the blind men. And so what is, seems like a very humble and tolerant position is actually a rather arrogant one. To be able to say, I am the only one that can step back and see all of the religions in the world and determine that all world religions only see part of the truth, but not the whole truth. You see, there's no way in which anyone can possibly be the key determining factor that all of the world religions only teach part of the truth, but not the whole truth. You see, the reality is this this morning, that for everyone who says that it's impossible to have exclusive truth, everybody, all the time, everywhere, without exception, whether they believe in Christianity or atheism, ultimately has an exclusive truth that is part of their belief system. Everyone, deep down inside, is an exclusivist. For the person that says there is absolute truth in Christianity, you are an exclusivist just as much as the person who says there is no such thing as absolute truth. At the end of the day, you are ultimately always, every time, making an exclusive claim. So the real question, the real problem is not to try to find who has exclusive truth and who doesn't have exclusive truth, the real question should be, which exclusive truth claim has the most merit? Because at the end of the day, every single person, every single one of us, whether we believe in God or not, whether we believe in Jesus or not, whether we embrace Christianity or not, have some, some part of an exclusive truth claim which drives our belief system. So if that is the exclusive truth claim that there is only one way to get to heaven through Jesus Christ, and that is the common objection to that exclusive truth claim, to end our message this morning, I want us to look at then what 
is so unique about Christianity itself. If we have to judge all exclusive truth claims on its merit, then we need to look at why does Christianity as an exclusive truth claim have more merit than the rest. Listen to me. All religion ultimately is exclusive. Every world religion without exception ultimately separates and divides because every world religion has a problem, some type of problem. We happen to call it sin, but every world religion identifies a problem. Every world religion identifies a solution to that problem. Every world religion without exception has a tenet of beliefs that drive that belief system. And every world religion ultimately says, I believe in my truths, I believe in my beliefs. And ultimately what they're saying is my beliefs are better than your beliefs. And what world religion ultimately says is this, that if I believe better than that person, I am doing well. And so the whole goal of world religion is to believe better and to do better than the person to your right or to your left. And that is what drives them. And so ultimately, whether they realize it or not, every world religion ultimately produces some level of arrogance and pride. I have my beliefs, and I believe my beliefs are better than your beliefs. Let's take the other extreme, secularism, which totally wants to avoid any type of religion. Secularism also produces intolerance. I mean, how often do we see on our news now a speaker goes to a college campus and they are booed right off the campus? Why? Because their beliefs don't match their beliefs. Our college campuses say, we're the educated, we're the enlightened, and you're not because you hold to a certain belief system that we're intolerant of. You see where I'm going with this? Every world religion, every system of philosophy and thought without exception ultimately produces some level of intolerance and arrogance and pride and division. Then what makes Christianity so different? Why is this exclusive claim above all other exclusive claims the one we message of salvation. It is the message of salvation that you can be saved and you can be rescued and you can be forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone, through the finished work of Christ alone. Every world religion and every philosophy throughout this universe, throughout the history of time has said this, if you believe well and you do well, you will be saved. Until Christianity came along, and said, no, you can't do well enough. You can't be good enough. Until Christianity came around, people were believing that as long as I believe well and do well, God will grant me favor. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it is through my doing well and through my being well and through my perfect life on your behalf that you will be saved. You see, there's never been any other message like this. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. The message of how you and I can be saved and how we can be rescued. Religion says, I have the truth and you can be saved by believing in that truth. Christianity says, no, the truth has come down. And it's the truth that saves you. And it's the truth that will set you free. 
You see, the reason Christianity is narrow is because it makes the announcement that all other means and all other methods and all other people and all other ways of salvation won't work. There is only one way for you and I to be saved, and that is through the righteousness and the blood and the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why Christianity is so narrow, because it announces that all the other ways will never work. But there is one that does work. And so I ask you this morning, to everyone out there that says Christianity and its narrowness and its exclusive claim seems so arrogant, it seems so intolerant, I want to ask them this morning, what seems more arrogant for me to stand up here and say that I can achieve my salvation, that you can achieve your own rescue, that you can achieve your favor with God. Versus, no, you can't achieve favor with God. That you need to admit that you're a sinner and that you're broken and that all of your good works will never be sufficient to appease the judge, but that you needed someone else, a man by the name of Jesus Christ, to come to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you should have died, to be raised for your forgiveness. I ask you, what seems more arrogant? To say that we can achieve our own salvation, but to admit I am a sinner in need of grace. You see, when you boil all of the truth claims down together, you will ultimately have two claims left. Either I can achieve my own salvation or Jesus has achieved my salvation for me. And I say to our culture that looks at Christianity as too narrow, and I say this, I will take my exclusivity over your exclusivity every day of the week. Your exclusivity says that you can save yourself. My exclusivity says that I need a savior to rescue me. I will bank on that exclusivity all day, every day. You see, the reality is you don't need to avoid or reject exclusive truth claims because you can't and you won't. What you need is to find the truth that will ultimately humble you. You need to find the exclusive truth that will save you and set you free. As I close this morning, I was sent a clip a few weeks ago from a television program called This Is Us. This Is Us is a new television show about a couple raising three kids born on the same day. Two boys, two sons, and a daughter. And the daughter struggles with her weight her whole life. But her dad is taken with this little girl. And this dad is constantly saying to his little girl, You're talented. You're beautiful. You're incredible. But eventually the girl grows up and when she becomes a teenager, she goes to her dad and she says, I need you to stop telling me I'm so beautiful because the intensity in which you tell me I'm beautiful, you're so intense about it, you're so quick about it, it's as if you're telling me you're really ugly, but I need to overcompensate the way that I tell you that you're beautiful. The way you tell me with the intensity you tell me actually is insulting to me. Well, this daughter, who's a teenager, is a fantastic singer, and 
She has to do an audition tape to get into this music school. And as she's recording this tape, her dad sneaks up behind her and videos her. What the dad doesn't realize is that there's a mirror in front of his daughter. of the mirror videotaping his daughter. Well, when the daughter finds out about this, she is furious, but she's also curious. And so when her dad's gone one day, she finds the video and she puts it in. And when she sees the video of herself, she realizes she also sees her dad. But now her dad is not saying any words, no flowery language, not trying to build her up. But he just sees his face. She sees his delight. She sees how he looks at her. He sees his affection. And later that night, she goes to her dad and she says, Dad, you know how I told you to stop telling me how beautiful I am? Never stop. Please don't ever stop. Because I need to learn how to see myself the way you see me. Bingo. That's the gospel. That's just not a feel-good story from television. See, the good news for you this morning is that if you are found in Jesus Christ this morning, God looks upon you the way he looks upon his son. That if you are found in Jesus Christ this morning, regardless of where you've been or what you've done, God looks down upon you as his favorite. against common culture and what seems like an unpopular message, the only thing I can tell you this morning is this. Jesus loves you and nothing else does. Nothing else will ultimately fill the void in your life. I don't care how great your career is. I don't care what your bank account is up to. I don't care how much money you made in the stock market the last few months. I don't care how great things are going in your life. None of these things will ultimately satisfy you. And certainly none of these things have the power to save. Could there be any more important message for our culture to hear? As as the stories rise of suicide, as people are medicating themselves because of depression and anxiety, as people are driven to alcoholism and workaholism and every other ism under the sun, is there no more important message for them to hear that there is a savior and there is hope and there is salvation and there is forgiveness and the only way is through Jesus Christ. Do you know this one? Do you know this love? The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe through God that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible tells us that today, not tomorrow, not the next week, today is the day of salvation. And so the gospel that you have heard this morning also is extended to you this morning as an invitation. For those that are weary and heavy laden, Jesus has come. Come to me, not tomorrow, not tonight, but come to me this morning and I will give you rest and you will enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where you will experience full forgiveness and full pardon and full rescue and full salvation, hope and joy and peace. 
unlike anything this world could ever offer. And that offer is extended to you this morning. Would you receive him? Our only hope, our only peace, our only hope of salvation.